You guys been enjoying the study through Romans? Yeah, me too. It's one of my favorite books. But then again, every book I'm teaching is my favorite book. So, In the beginning of chapter 12, and we're going to finish chapter 12 this morning. I keep wanting to say tonight, but this morning. In the beginning of chapter 12, Paul begged us to offer ourselves to the Lord. He told us that in light of what God has done for us, and he spent the first 11 chapters of Romans, and, and there's a lot of doctrinal stuff in there, but he, in light of all that we have in the Lord, he said it's only our reasonable service to offer our lives back to God, to have the idea, the mentality that my life isn't really mine, I want to give it back to the Lord to do and to accomplish the things that he would want to do with it. And then he warns us, he says, don't think too highly of yourself. Because that can be a problem in some people's lives as their pride can kind of creep in. And he reminds us that all the gifts that we have, all the talents, all the things that you've accomplished, all of the, all the stuff, whether, you know, throughout your life, everything you have is a result of the Lord. You know, the fact that you have breath in your lungs is because the Lord has given it to you this morning. No one woke up and said, oh, I got to breathe. It just happens. It's a, it's a gift from the Lord. And the Lord has given us all these gifts. And he says, don't forget where they come from. And then he went on to tell us about the church being a body. And about everybody having different gifts in the body. And, and we, he talked about that we're diverse, but yet we're unified because we're one body. And each part has its own specialty. Each part does its own thing. And they all function together for the body to succeed. And each person has their own gifts. And in the body of Christ, when these gifts, when they're in operation, when they're working the way they're supposed to be, the church becomes an effective tool for the Lord to use in a mighty way because everybody's doing their part and nobody's worried about my part is not significant or your part is better than my part. It's just doing what God has called you to do and then Lord, the Lord brings people, whether it be a local church or whether it be the complete body of Christ, all of the believers, he brings them together to accomplish his will and the Lord can use us. But Paul also understands that we're not just parts, we're people. And he also understands that as people, sometimes we can get a little derailed because, well, we're susceptible to failure. We're susceptible to our emotions. We're susceptible to thoughts. And Paul wants to tell us with the remainder of chapter 12 what it looks like, how we should act, what it means when we really give our life to the Lord to live. And when we really give it back to him as a sacrifice, he wants to tell us or show us what that would look like. Think of it this way. Remember in school when your report card came out? Yeah, we don't like that part, right? Unless it was the last one, you figured, well, it's all over with anyways. But the report cards that would come out, you're going to get a grade in each subject. And, and you would hope that you got an A in every subject, but you know your grade always reflected what? How much work you did. How much effort you put in. What did, did you really put in the time? Did you really study? Did you really do what you needed to do? Well, this is kind of going to be like a spiritual report card this morning. You see, Paul's going to list a bunch of different things in Christianity, and you're going to get a chance to look at your life and go, well, I got an F on that one. Oh, I got an A on that one. And maybe there'll be some B's and C's and D's in there as well. But here's the, here's the thing. If there's an area that you look at and go, wow, I'm not very good in that. that, that that's something I need to work on. I want you to underline it in your Bible and go back to it and, and realize I need to work on that. I need, I need to change that. And allow the Lord to be able to work in you and to change some of those things that we're going to cover. Now let's read chapter 12, verses 9 through 21 together. Well, I'll read it. You follow along. And then uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about them. Look at verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence. Fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope. Patient in tribulation. Continuing steadfastly in prayer distributing to the needs of the saints. 
given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will, reap coal, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As we begin to unfold these verses, I believe the Lord's going to show us clearly what a godly life looks like. And as I said, as I just read through that very preliminary, the pre- preliminarily, you're going to be able to look and go, ah, there's some things in there that I don't do so well. Well, now's your chance to change those things. Now's your chance to find out what you need to work on. If there's a low grade that you're going to give yourself, then it's something you, you have the ability to change that. Let's look at the first one. Let love be without hypocrisy. A godly life is a life that loves without hypocrisy. Why does Paul start here? Because he's going to give us all of these things, all of these, these, these you know, characteristics that define the Christian life, but he wants to make it clear, don't do it hypocritically. Love needs to be without hypocrisy. It's not fake love. It's not something that you can pretend. The love that he's referring to here is agape love. It's, it's the highest form of love. It's the love that God has for us. It's a love that comes only from God and flows through us. You can't necessarily generate this kind of love on your own. It's a love that, it's a love that puts other people first. It's a love that you choose to have. It's a choice. You don't just, it doesn't just happen to you. It's a love that is very, very real. And Paul says this kind of love, you, you don't just pretend you love people. You have to choose to love people. You have to really set your heart and your mind, I'm going to love somebody, even if they're unlovable. And the word hypocrisy you know what hypocrisy, hypocrite means, right? It was the, in, the, in the old Greek playwrights, whoever the actor was on the theater stage, that they were called a hypocrite. Or, and we would call them actors and actresses. They were called hypocrites in Greek. That's where our word hypocrite comes from. You're pretending to be somebody you're not. That's what an actor and actress does in a movie. They pretend to live a life. They pretend to be a person. They assume a role. They're pretend, it's not really who they are. They're just pretending. And Paul says that's not how we should be in the body of Christ. We're not going to pretend to love somebody. We need to actually love them. We actually need to have that. That comes from God through us. You can't, if if you're trying to generate it and do it on your own, it's going to become hypocritical. It's just you pretending something. It's not something that we should fake, in other words. These are these these characteristics. We don't just, we we don't clean ourselves up on Sunday morning so that we can come to church and pretend that we do these things. We need to be honest with ourselves. Don't rate yourself too high. Oh, look, I got straight A's. You know, I mean, that's prob- no, I, if you got straight A's through that list that I just read to you, I want to learn from you because I didn't get straight A's through it. And I'm not saying I'm any better than you because I'm not. I'm a sinner too. But I looked at that list and I'm like, man, just when you think, well, I'm a pastor. God's got a lot of work to do in me too. And he, but he's doing it. I'm not the same person I was, just like he's doing it in you. But I see the areas that we need to work on, that I need to work on. And hopefully you'll start to see them for your life as well. He says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. A godly life is a life that abhors evil and it clings to good. Abhor literally means to, it means to hate 
or detest with horror. To hate or detest something with horror. I literally hate it. We're not to tolerate sin or evil. We're to abhor it. We're not, we're to hate it. We're to detest it. We're not to watch it, to listen to it, to think about it, to speak about it, to smell about it. We're not to be frightened by it, but we're supposed to be frightened by the effect that it's going to have in our life. We, we need to, we need to abhor it. We need to, evil and sin should be something I don't want any part of. I should get it away from me. I shouldn't allow a little of it here. I shouldn't allow a little to creep in there. It should be something that I, 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 I abhor. But it doesn't mean that we walk around pointing out sin. Oh, look at that evil movie. Oh, look at that sinful mouth. Oh, look at her. Look, that's not, that's not what we're called to do. What we're called to do is to abhor sin, but we're called to cling to evil. I mean, cling to good, not evil. Cling. I'm glad you guys are paying attention. Our life isn't spent running from sin. Our right life is spent running to what is good. We're not fleeing from, we're fleeing to. We're running to those things that are good. And that word for cling, it means to be glued or cemented. Sometimes we have the picture of cling like somebody hanging on to a rope for dear life, right? I'm clinging on. I'm, that's not what it means. It means I am glued or I am cemented to. I'm, I'm glued to what is good. I'm cemented to what is good. Now Paul wants to go on and tell us in verse 10 how we should deal with each other. This could be kind of rough, I'm telling you. Look what he says, verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor giving preference to one another. A godly life deals with people the biblical way and not the natural way. You see, naturally, we don't want to give affection to one another in brotherly love. We don't want to put other people before us. Who is it all about? Me. It's all about you. You're always about, it's, uh, the natural body says, I want, it's all about me. Now, why do you think Paul puts this section here in scripture? Because he knows that we have a hard time when this, with, this, with this type of section. We know it's hard for, one, for us to deal with one another sometimes. Dealing with other believers doesn't come naturally. We need to work at it. Paul wants to give us some insight. Most of us aren't naturally affectionate in brotherly love. We don't put other people first. It's just the opposite. We want to put ourselves first. It becomes all about me. But Paul's saying that's not the way it should be. Paul says, I want you to treat people this way. I want you to be kindly affectionate to them. Well, what's that mean? It means to love them like they're part of your family. Love them like your brother or your sister, like they're, like they're part of your family. Treat them like brothers and sisters. Have that family bond with them. Develop that bond. One of the reasons that we have food and things like that after church is so that we can develop a bond with somebody. You can learn to meet people. It doesn't mean that, you know, you have certain people in your family that you're going to be closer to and that's okay, but it's, our church body should be a family. We should be like brothers and sisters and we need to build that bond. Every church family, every family has difficult times, don't they? Every family goes through difficult seasons. There's fights and there's times where the brothers and sisters hurt each other. They say things or they offend one another. But it has to be dealt with. It needs to be a heart that, to repair that relationship. We don't want to just be, you know, don't just not talk to your brother for how long. If you, you need to repair as much as possible, Paul is going to tell us. We need to live humbly, live peaceably with all them, as, with other people. As much as it depends on us, that's what he's going to say. And he also says, I want you to give honor and gain preference to one another. It means putting others before yourself. Putting somebody before you. Don't get so caught up in your own life, in your own rights, in your own privileges, in your own recognition, your reputation, your status. It's not all about you. 
It's about you helping somebody else. It's, all, it's about other people. Give preference to your brothers and sisters. Be concerned with their rights. Be concerned with their life. Be concerned with their reputation, their status, their privileges. Be concerned with, with them as opposed to yourself. He goes on in verse 11. He says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, and given to hospitality. A godly life keeps its focus on the things that are really important, the things that really matter. Serving in diligence, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, steadfast prayer life, having a steadfast prayer life, helping those in need. What do these mean? Not lagging in diligence? Our service to each other and to the Lord needs to be diligent. We need to continue. It needs to, we need to work hard at it. It needs to be fervent in spirit. The word fervent, it means to boil. We need to be boiling over with the spirit. We need to be, have this, this desire. You don't want to be lazy or lethargic. You want to be boiling over with the Lord. How can I serve somebody else? That is so unnatural, isn't it? Because you know what a lot of times we do is we sit in church and go, what do we think? Where am I going to go for lunch? It's all about you. Do you ever think, where can I take somebody to lunch? Where can I find somebody? How, how can, I, can I invite somebody sitting next to me? You see, this whole concept is, is the Christian concept, but it's, it's so unnatural to us. We actually have to work at it. It's something that you have to do. You have to reach out to people. It's not, you know, it becomes all about us. And, and if we can open our eyes and see it's not all about us, that God has something for us to do, how, could we, how much more could we affect the world for Christ if we were putting other people before ourselves? Serving the Lord. I thought we were talking about other people. We are, but here's what he says. Serve other people as though you're serving the Lord, as though you're serving him, because you are serving the Lord and serving other people. Rejoicing in hope. Serving God, rejoicing in hope. Sometimes when we set out in service to serve other people, we want to rejoice in results instead of rejoicing in hope. I want to rejoice in a thank you. I want to rejoice in being recognized for what I do. I want to rejoice for, you know, I, I, I want you to tell me thank you. I want you to realize how hard I work or what I've done or how much sacrifice I've made. That's not what it says. Rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in hope, not rejoicing in results. Our service is motivated by our obedience, our rejoicing in hope. We have this in the Lord, not recognizing or not, not to be recognized or to get some kind of recognition. It needs to be our hope in the Lord. But he also says we need to be patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. Oh, we don't like that, do we? Uh-uh. Tribulation comes. What do we want? Lord, make it go away. Make it end. I've had enough. It starts today. I want it done by the afternoon. Matter of fact, we don't even need to finish the morning off. We're good. Get rid of tribulation. But you know, there's always going to be tribulation, isn't there? In serving others, there's going to be tribulation. You ever served anybody else and had them not understand what you're doing and get offended and then they start not liking you because of what you did and all you were trying to do was help them in some way? Paul says, be patient in tribulation. And the word patient there, it's not a passive word. It's not a word that just goes, yeah, I'm patient. I'm, it, it means this. It means steadfast endurance. It means you are steadfastly, you are stationed, you are enduring the tribulation. You are going through it. Now, in some, somehow in my mind, I think it's okay that if I'm going through a tribulation, it's all right for me to be cranky or short-tempered or, or you know, be a little annoyed. If I, well, I'm a tribulation. Leave me alone. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul says that's never all right. Just because you're going through a hard time, you still need to be all of these things, patient in tribulation. Patient in tribulation. Look what else he says. Steadfast in prayer. Steadfast. Steadfast in prayer. 
Steadfast means this, to continue to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication in, or, or, or in, in the face of difficulty, to continue to do something with intense effort in the face of difficulty. Would that describe your prayer life? Would you, if, if you were to say, if I would say, all right, give me, give me a one-word description of your prayer life, would it be steadfast? Without ceasing? That's two words. What would it be? You see, I come to verses like this and steadfastly in prayer, and I look at my life, and I know there's always room for improvement in my prayer life. I have never read a book in prayer, or I have never read anything about prayer, and I go, yep, I've got it, that down, because I can always pray more. I can always pray more. There's always more time. There's always, you know, Paul says pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean that we spend all day on our knees. It means as we go through our day, our mind is connected to the Lord. We're, we're interceding for other people. We're connected. We're, it's just this fellowship that we have with them. It's always, Lord, what do you want me to do? It's not just spending all day sitting on your knees or, you know, kneeling, praying. It's I'm steadfast in the Lord. And that should be the way that our prayer life should be described. You know, I look at that and I go, oh, that's not such a good grade. I go, well, I go to prayer on Sunday nights, and I pray in the mornings when I get up, but then there's, sometimes there's days where the afternoons, I'm, you know, I, I come back to the Lord at night, and I realize, you know what, I haven't been with you all day. I, I've kind of been off doing my own thing, and, and I need to be with you all day, Lord. And, and that's the way that we need to be, steadfast in prayer. Look what he says. What else? Distributing to the needs of the saints. Distributing to the needs of the saints. There are all kinds of needs in the body of Christ, isn't there? All kinds. There's emotional, there's physical, there's spiritual, there's financial. All kinds. As, as you sit in this group and you look around, there's all kinds of different needs. Some people have financial needs. They may need a little help financial. Other people don't need financial help. They need a little emotional help. They need a little physical help. There, maybe there's, there's something you can do for their health. There's something you can do with them or help them in some way. Paul's not speaking of socialism here. He's not saying that all those have to, we have to distribute all that we have and everybody gets the same thing. He, those who are blessed and have much are not called to distribute everything. It's not, he's not speaking of or supporting a socialist form of government here. He's just saying Christians need to help other Christians in the body of Christ meet the needs that they have, whatever it is. But there's a big difference between a need and a want, isn't there? There's a big difference. A need is not just... A need is not a need just because you want to keep up with the Joneses. Let me say it again. A need is not a need just because you want to keep up with the neighbors. What are our needs? Our basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, you know, relationships. Uh, oftentimes, you, if, if you could just befriend somebody who doesn't have a lot of friends or maybe they're, they're home and they can't get out much, if you could just make a phone call once in a while, you could meet somebody's need. If you could just, if you realize somebody in the church, maybe, maybe they live by themselves and, and they just, and you just, they, they're, they're just, all day long, they come to, they go to work, they come home and it's an empty house and there's nobody there to see them that, you know, other than their dog or their cat or whatever. If you could just text them or call them and say, Hey, I'm thinking about you today, praying for you today. You want to grab some dinner? You're, you're meeting somebody's need. It's not always about writing a check or helping somebody financially. That, that's a, that's a serious need that somebody may need you to, excuse me, that somebody may need you to meet for them. Be available to be used by the Lord in that way. Please do your best to meet the needs of the body of Christ, but you must be led by the Spirit. You must let the Lord lead you, because if you're outside of the will of God, you could actually be hindering something the Lord's doing. You know, sometimes I, always, I often think of the story of the prodigal son. You know, he took his inheritance, went off on his own, and, you know, blew all the money that dad gave him, and pretty soon he found himself working, you know, as a pig farmer, feeding the pigs, and 
What if some? What if he'd held on a? What if he'd stood on the corner and held a sign? We'll work for food, and everybody came by and handed him money. And he never actually got to work in the pig farm, and he never made it there. Never came so low that he looked and he said, "You know what? My servants have a better life than this at my dad's house." What if? What if the society or the, or the system had sustained him, and he never came to the place where I, I've got nothing? I'm going home. I'm going to ask my dad if I can be a servant. You see, that's what drove him home. So we don't ever want to work against what God is doing because sometimes people need to be brought that low. They need to realize, I don't have anything. I am going to starve. I need, to, I need the Lord to provide for me. Sometimes they need to do that. So we always want to be led by the Spirit, led by the Lord when we're doing that. And he also says, he also tells us to be, to be given to hospitality. Now some of you guys go, uh-oh. Others go, yeah, I like entertaining people. I like, I like being around people. Hospitality. The word for hospitality, you know what it means? It means love for strangers. Is there, you, ever, you ever met somebody and you've just, they, they don't, they've never met a stranger. They're just that kind of person. They see somebody new, that's it. They've got a love for hospitality. They've got a love for strangers. They want to get out. They want to meet them. They want to talk to them, find out what their life is all about. Love for strangers. That's what it's like. Given is a strong word. It's meant to pursue something or do something with intense effort. We're to be given, we're to pursue a love for strangers. How do you react around strangers? How do you react? Do you pursue them? Are you given to a love for, do you want to get to know them? Do you want to seek them out and get to know them? Do you treat them as your guest? Is your, is your home open to strangers, to people that you would see? And I know what happens. Well, that's not safe. We have to be careful. Be led by the Lord. If the Lord leads you, he's got you, he'll protect you. But what, where, how, where does it fall? You say, Rob, are you saying I need to be more, more of an entertainer? No, there's a big difference between hospitality and, and, and entertainment. You know the difference? Entertainment says, I want to impress you with my home, my decorating, or my cooking, or my whatever. Hospitality says, this house is a simple gift from my master, I use it however and wherever he desires. Entertainment says or needs to impress. Hospitality aims to serve. It's about other people. Entert entertainment puts things before people saying, well, as soon as I get my house cleaned up, as soon as I get my house ready, as soon as I get my furniture fixed, as soon as it, it's about the things instead of the people, as soon as I get this done, then I'll start having somebody over. Where hospitality puts people first saying, no furniture, no problem. We'll just picnic on the floor tonight. We'll just hang out together. Entertainment subtly declares, this house is mine. An expression of my personality, my ingenuity. It's what I've earned. It's what I've built. It's what I've made for. Hospitality whispers, what's mine is yours. Enjoy it anytime. Entertainment is all about you and what you have and what you can do hospitality is all about serving other people. It's all about them, making them feel comfortable and meeting their needs. True hospitality is practical Christianity. My mother always had a saying, and she's with the Lord now, but she had a saying, it went like this. If you want to come see me, come anytime. Just stop by the house. But if you want to come see my house, make an appointment because I have to get it ready for you. <laughs> and that's the way she was. She would, she would always, mom and dad have always been that way. Could just stop by and visit. Love for people to stop by and visit. But if you want to see the house, you got to make an appointment because I got to make sure everything's ready for you. But if you just want to visit and hang out, come on by. Hospitality and entertainment, two very different things. Verse 14. How are we doing on a report card so far? 
<laughs> some good, some bad, right? I, I understand. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. I don't like that one. Bless and do not curse. A godly life is a life that doesn't retaliate. It's easy to love the people that love you. Oh, you love me? Great. Tell me how much you love me. I love you. Great. It's everything is just wonderful that way. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He says, bless those who persecute you. And that word for bless, normally the word bless means happy. That's not what it means. The Greek word means this. If you have a pen and you write in your Bible, circle it. It means this, to speak well of them or to eulogize them. Yeah, I'll eulogize them right after I kill them. <laughs> when it says bless those who... Some of you guys are just getting that. <laughs> you can see where my mind goes, right? When it says bless those who persecute you, he's referring to how are you talking about them? When someone persecutes you, they say something about you. What do you do? You know, do you get on Facebook and blast them? Do you, do you throw it all out there in a negative way? Do you, I can't, can you believe what somebody did? Or do you just do you speak well of them? You see, the natural reaction is what? Yeah, I'll eulogize them right after I kill them. But that's not how we're supposed to be as Christians. We're supposed to let God handle it. In return for their harsh words, we're supposed to speak well of them. Speak good of them. It's not natural, but as Christians, we should live this way. Look at verse 15. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Half of this is all right. Weeping with those who are weeping, that's okay. Some people, yeah, I get that. You know, someone's in trouble, cry with them. But rejoicing with those who rejoice, that's difficult for people sometimes. Because they, they see somebody rejoicing and they look and go, how come I don't have that? How come I don't, they're happy because they got a promotion. How come I didn't get a promotion? Or they're happy because they got a new house. How come I didn't get a new, God, God must not love me, I didn't get a new house. It's not what the Bible says. The Bible says rejoice with those who are rejoicing. It's not about you, remember? Rejoice with those who are rejoiced. Weep with those who are weep. When someone is rejoicing, is it difficult for you to rejoice with them? Or do you always want the thing they're rejoicing for? You see, as Christians, we need to be able to rejoice with our brothers and sisters. Maybe God has blessed somebody. And here's what we often neglect is we want what they're rejoicing for, but we don't want to walk the path that they had to walk to receive it. We don't want to go to the college and get the education to get the good job, to get educated, to get the promotion. We don't want to work hard and work, you know, 60 hours a week to make all the money to buy the nice house, but we want the nice house. That's the way we are as human beings. But Christians, we need to be able to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, whatever they're rejoicing about, because they're your brothers and your sisters. When your family does something good, gets something, re receives something, can you rejoice with them? Or is it going to be this sense of bitterness that goes, wish that would have been me. That's not the way it should be. Rejoice with those who are rejoicing. A godly life is a life that can rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. A godly life is a life that remains humble. Don't try to climb any social, intellectual, or spiritual ladders. Just stay who you are. Just be the person that God called you to be. Do the things that God called you to do. Don't try to achieve something God hasn't called you to achieve. Just treat everybody the same. It says, you know, we want to keep the same mind towards... See, see people is people. 
It's hard because prejudice creeps in. It's hard when we look around and we want to look at somebody in society that's maybe not doing so well. Maybe they're, maybe they're hooked on drugs and they're hooked on heroin and they're going through a difficult time and they're, they're out on the streets and they're living, they don't have a house and they're not working. They've lost all their jobs and we want, to, we want to look at them differently. But we have to understand they might not be saved yet. They might need the Lord Jesus Christ and you might be the very one to go bring, it, bring him to them. Don't look and go, well, I've, I've worked for my life. I've accomplished all I had and I didn't stick a needle in my arm. They might need you to come help them get out of that situation. We need to see them as people because that's the way that God sees them. Early in my police officer career, I began to be very, I, I found myself being very harsh, very cold, very jaded towards people. And I, at the same time, the Lord was really kind of working in my life. And I began to ask the Lord, Lord, can you, can you show me people the way that you see people? Can you show me how you see somebody? Because I found out it was, you know, I was dealing with people that were getting arrested every day and troublemakers and problems. And I began to look at them and think that's what everybody was like. And you know what? The Lord answered that prayer. And he began to give me compassion where I didn't have any. He began to let me see people as being lost and needing a savior. And, and it, it affected my job in a positive way because I, I lost the idea of being cold and harsh and, and, and insensitive. And, you know, that's a choice you made. I began to look and go, Lord, how can I affect them for you? What is it that I can do? How can I help them? Is there, is there something? And some there are and some there aren't. But he says, be of the same mind toward one another. Don't set your mind on high things, associate, but associate with the humble. Stay away from the prideful ones. Don't be wise in your own opinion. Oh, don't think you're the smartest one out there because you know what? There's always somebody smarter. And if all you hang around with people that are not as smart as you, then you might be the smartest one, but get out and get with the other people. You might find there's always somebody smarter than you. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. A godly life is a life that does not repay evil for evil. If somebody wrongs you, somebody mistreats you, somebody says something about you, the natural response is to do what? Repay evil for evil. Somebody says something bad about me, I'm going to say something bad about them. Someone punches me, I'm going to punch them back harder. Someone does something to me, I'm going to give it back to you more. This is, this is, a, this is what happens in marriages, right? The husband or the wife says something to, to offend the husband, and then the, the other, they, what do they do? Well, you said something hurtful, so I'm going to say something hurtful back to you. That's not how the Christian is supposed to act. Don't repay evil for evil. Somebody does something, Paul says, no, don't do that. It's never profitable. It only divides the relationship further. When you respond with evil for evil, it only puts a stake farther in the relationship. I know it's the natural response. I know it happens. I know that we lash out as human beings sometimes. I know it happens. But when it does happen, you have to realize I'm in contradiction to what God's word says, and I'm going to take the steps to make it right. I'm going to repent before the Lord, and I'm going to go to the person that I wronged, whether it's my husband, my wife, my, my boss, my neighbor, whatever it is, and I'm going to tell them, look, I am sorry for what I've done, and then I list to them, this is what I've done wrong, would you please forgive me? You can't guarantee that they'll forgive you, but you can do what your part is, as much as it is possible, as much as it depends on you. Are you living peaceably this morning with all people, as much as it depends on you? Or is there somebody in your life that you're just at odds with? There's just, there's just something going on. You just don't like them. They don't like you. And that's the way that it's going to be. Sometimes, sometimes it's not possible to live peaceably with some people. 
Some people are irrational. Some people, you know, there, there's mental problems. It, it happens. Sometimes people can be dangerous. Sometimes that can happen. But notice what Paul says. Notice how he says it. If it is possible, here's what you have to answer for. If you're at odds with somebody in your life, is it because you have failed to not do something? Or because you have not gone to them and asked for forgiveness? Or because you have failed to humble yourself and say, you know, I want to work on this relationship. I want to agree to disagree. I want to work something out. Paul says, if it is possible, as much as it depends on you, live peaceably. Live at peace with all men. If there's somebody here and you have somebody in your life and you go, I know who that is, who he's talking about in my life. I don't know who it is. I don't want to know who it is. If you want to talk to me about it, that's fine. But ask yourself the question, have I done everything possible? Or am I just being a little prideful, a little arrogant, a little, it's their fault. I don't care if it's their fault. Are you, have you done everything that's possible? To, it doesn't, Paul doesn't say if it's their fault, it's okay to not live at peace with them. He said, if it's, if it's possible, everything possible, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And just a side note on that, be careful what you say. Be careful what you put on Facebook. Be careful how you separate people. When you're trying to live at peace with all men, you can, you can separate somebody very quickly by a post. You can separate somebody by an opinion. By a, you, you, can, you can really divide a relationship because maybe they're not just like you. Maybe they're not. Maybe, maybe the, the church, the body of Christ, is a lot of different people, and we need to make sure that we're trying to live peaceably with each other, especially with each other, and those that aren't in the body of Christ as well. We live peaceably. We don't seek out contention. We don't seek out disputes. We don't seek out arguments. We seek out peace. A godly life is also a life that knows how to deal with their enemies. How do you deal with your enemies? Look at verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will, keep, you will heap whole coals of fire on his head. The one who's trusting in God will not think it's necessary to avenge themselves. They won't think it's necessary to worry about their reputation. They'll let the Lord worry about their reputation. They'll leave the issue of vengeance to the Lord. They'll leave the issue of vindication to the Lord and give place to wrath, giving no place to their own wrath, but allowing God's work to be done. Your responsibility is to love, not to take vengeance. It's God's responsibility to take vengeance. That word, that, that retaliation for people that hurt you, it belongs to him. And do you know what? He's probably going to do a better job of it than you do. Because think about a parent and their children. Now, he might not do it the way you'd like him to do it. Maybe you've read the Psalms and you're like, David, I'd wish you'd just kick his teeth in, Lord. But he's going to, he's going to take vengeance on your behalf. He tells us, Verse 20, therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. That's what I want to do to my enemy. I want to put coals of fire on his head. About 100 pounds worth. This is not a way to get vengeance on your enemy. It'd be nice to dump a bunch of hot coals on my enemy's head. No, no, no. The heaping coal speaks of the shame that your enemy might feel as you meet their needs. 
You see, what he's talking about there in Paul's day, in that day, if your fire went out in your house where you lived, what did you do to light another fire? You had to go to your next door neighbor and ask them for some of their coals and they would put the coals in a heaping bin and when you got home, you would hope you could take that hot coal and rekindle your fire. So the idea being that your neighbor and, and you have been disputing with one another, you're not getting along, but yet you've been, you've been the good neighbor and you've been the friendly neighbor. Now his fire goes out and he comes over to you and says, I need some coals. And what do you say? Sure, I'd love to heap coals of fire on your head. This is not saying that, listen, if I can just give them, a, if, I, if, my, if my enemy comes against me, I'll just give them a drink of water and I'll give them something to eat and then I'll be heaping those hot coals of fire on their head. That's not, it's, not, it's not a vengeance thing, it's a, it's a shame thing. It's when someone has wronged you in some way, when someone has said something, done something, and you haven't fallen into it, you haven't responded to evil with evil, it's going to, they're going to realize, wow. And then they need something from you, they come to you because they can get something and they trust you and they know you and, and here they are, now they have to humble themselves and that relationship can then be restored that way. That's what Paul's talking about. It's not talking about dumping 100 pounds of coals, hot coals on somebody's head. Verse 21, he says, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. When someone sins against you, respond with good and not evil. If you've never had anybody wrong you, you haven't lived very long. If you've never had anybody sin against you or say things about you or point their finger at you, you haven't lived very long. The Christian life doesn't respond back the same way. The Christian life does not repay evil for evil. The Christian life meets the needs of their enemies, and that is contrary to what the world would say. Can you think or can you imagine with me how much we could affect the world for Christ if we would just do this? If the next time somebody says something about you at work, the next time somebody gets promoted and you don't, you rejoice with them and you speak blessings over them, you speak good things about them, you don't speak bad about them, and they're telling everybody else at work how bad you are and what you did and this and that, and they're making stuff up, but yet you don't say a word. Think what the Lord, think of how we could affect the world for Christ if we would do that. It'd be, such, it'd be so much better. And, and you know what the best part is? You wouldn't be stressed out over it. Because when someone does come against you, what does it cause in your life? It's a burden. It's stressful. It's anger. It's mad. But when you can just say, Lord, it's your hands. Lord, you're, you worry about my reputation. You worry about that, Lord. You worry about all the, you know, yes, they found out something in my past that now they all know about. Now they're all laughing at me. You worry about that, Lord, because that's not who I am anymore. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Now that's not who I am. Let him handle those kinds of things. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This implies that it's possible to be overcome by evil. But we can overcome evil with good. Well, how'd you do on your report card? If you're like me, some you did okay in. Others, good thing he's not, we're not done. He's not done with me, right? He's got a lot of work to do. Before we close this morning... I want you to just take a few minutes. Go back over the scripture we read. Maybe you need to reread it. Maybe you want to just pray about it. Maybe you already know where the Lord's speaking to you this morning and said, that's the area that I want to work in your life. Because chances are he's not going to pick all of them. Maybe you've got a whole bunch of F's in there. Find out where he wants to start. Find out, where, Lord, where do you want to start in that? What's, the, what's, the, what's my starting subject in there? Where do I need to start? Just spend a few minutes with him in prayer and see what he would have you to do. Because it's all about, it's not what I tell you to do, it's about what he tells you to do. It's about being led by the Lord and being led by the Holy Spirit. So Father, we come before you now. And Lord, there's a lot of subjects in this, in these verses. There's a lot of things that we can look at our lives and say, we need improvement on that. 
We can see failures, but we look to the future for successes. We look to the way that you can lead us and guide us in your ways and that you can show us. So as we come before you quietly now, just you and us, no one's going to be praying out loud. It's just going to be you and us, Lord. Would you just, just whisper in our heart, whisper through your word what it is that you want us to work on. Father, we don't want this to be a message that's spoken and then we walk out of here and never think about it again. Lord, these are the kind of areas of Scripture that you use to change our lives forever. So we want to hear from you, Father. Show us what section, show us what portion that we need to work together with you on so that we can be more like you and be more useful for you. Because after all, it's our reasonable service to offer our lives back to you, as the Apostle Paul said. So go before the Lord quietly, just three or four minutes, and see what he might have to say to you this morning.